Hey, if you have your Bible, Revelation 14 is where we'll be this evening. We're going to read the same passage that we read this morning because that's what we're going to cover. Now, I will be honest with you, it might as well be four at five today. We did not, I had a little challenge getting ready to come tonight because I didn't want to step backwards into some of the things we had already covered, and I didn't want to borrow from the things that we have in the weeks ahead. So uh, it was a difficult moment, so we just settled on four questions tonight. I think, I think you won't be disappointed in, in one of them at least. When we talk about Revelation 14, this section that we read this morning is really somewhat of the heart of it. It is a, 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 a parallel passage. These two are intended to go side by side. If your Bible has paragraph markings or section markings or it breaks it up into paragraphs for you, then maybe you notice that they do stand in parallel in, in some respects anyway. Let me read it for you one more time. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand, another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice, him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap. The hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat on the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. That's one harvest. If you're not using a Bible that has section markings, then maybe just put little bracket marks. It's okay to do that. One before verse 14 and one at the end of verse 16. Then another angel came out of a temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden down outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. That's the other harvest. I, I want to section this for you because if you don't know these are two separate things, it might be very confusing and you might go, what, what, what is this supposed to be? This highly symbolic language that he uses and the descriptions that he provides for the angels causes us to go, hmm, I'm not quite sure I understand. Here's you might call it a bonus question, one that isn't in your presentation, but we'll take it up. This son of man that's discussed in verse 14 that I told you this morning, I believe is Jesus himself. It appears, if we take this as it is in verse 15, that another angel is telling Jesus what to do. What do we do with that? We leave it to the Lord to figure out. Let me just be honest enough to say that. All right? Likewise, in verses 18, uh, the angel who has charge over the fire, there in many commentaries, you'll find a great discussion. And I don't mean in the sense of that's tremendous, it's really good. Rather, it's quite voluminous, a lot of conversation about it, about what this means charge over the fire. Factor it in this way. When you read through historical literature about 
the apocalyptic writings, and there are many of them in Jewish life and, and in what we call non-canonical books, books that are outside of the Bible but associate themselves somehow with the Bible, then you see a, a, tra a tradition frequently espoused that there are angels assigned to various aspects of nature, angels assigned to wind, to rain, to, uh, to, to fire. These angels, whoever they might be, are assigned to different aspects of nature. That doesn't mean they're worshipped, it just means that we acknowledge they have such an existence and the area of their authority intact. Now, here's why you might have never heard that before. Scripture never says that. This is one of the few times that we have the authority over the fire listed specifically. We don't find in Scripture an angelology, if you will, a discussion about angels that makes clear exactly what they do. Now, the best work, it's rather dated now, but the best work that we've seen on that is still Billy Graham's book on angels from, gosh, 50 years ago now. Uh, it, it is still the work that we return to on a regular basis. If you're interested in a, in a deeper conversation about verses 14 and 15 and about verses, verse 18, then I invite you to start there. Uh, if you're interested in having a deeper conversation about angels and their, their place, about what they're supposed to be about, then let's, let me encourage you to go there first. All right, that was all for free. You didn't pay for that, all right? That's just the introductory part. It reminds me forevermore of the story that I heard Dr. Paul Powell tell about uh, a pastor who uh, used a lifesaver as his timing mechanism for his sermons. You heard this story, I bet you. Maybe not. So he would put a lifesaver in his mouth when it got time for him to preach, and when the lifesaver was gone, he knew it was time to stop. Lifesaver, it was about 25 minutes in length, and that's about how long a sermon should. Well, one particular Sunday morning, he reached into his pants pocket to get his lifesaver, and he got a button, put that in his mouth. Man, he preached a long time that day, and he, he got done, and people were like, wow, that was a long message for you, and well, I know, I just got caught up in the spirit of things. He didn't tell them that, the button, and finally he confessed it later. Another Sunday, he was preaching along, and the spirit just got with him, and he just couldn't help it. He just kept on and going. That lifesaver was gone, and he just didn't care. Finally, one of his deacons stood up and said, Pastor, you got another button in your mouth? The answer is no, but thank God anyway, all right? How about we pray together and we'll begin in earnest. Thank you, Lord, for your word, even if we don't understand all of it. Because it's your word, we don't have to. I pray that you would enlighten our minds to what we need to know and that we would trust you with the rest. I'm grateful, Lord Jesus, you've given us this evening to share, and I thank you, Lord, for the love that you've given us for one another and for your kingdom. Guide us now in this time, Lord Jesus, and use it for your kingdom's sake. We pray a special blessing for our friends, the Wiggums. Thank you for a life well lived in David. I pray, Father, your mercy over them, and I ask God you would help us to celebrate his life well. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so now we arrive at the first question. Is the scene in Revelation 14, 1 to 5, in heaven or on earth? This, believe it or not, is a question that draws quite a bit of attention. 
And the reason it does is because of the description in verse 1 about where it takes place. Mount Zion. Where is Mount Zion? Revelation 14 features the Lamb and the 144,000. We talked about that last week. Where, pray tell, is Mount Zion? Is it on heaven, in heaven, or on earth? Consider with me this. Throughout Scripture, Mount Zion is consistently used as a symbol of heaven. Hebrews 12.22, to be really specific. Even though Mount Zion is a literal place on earth as well. The earthly Mount Zion is the place in Jerusalem where the temple stood. So even when it was a physical place, it still stands for where presence of God is most clearly seen. That place that we call Mount Moriah, Temple Mount, Mount Zion, whichever name you might apply to it, is still a place that is highly revered, as it is frequently in many of your homes that you've seen where you've placed pictures of the old city prominently in your home. Nothing wrong with that. But is that the place where this is taking place, that hill in Jerusalem, or in heaven? My contention, my presentation to you tonight is this. From what we have in this scripture, in Revelation 14, combined with what we know about the 144,000 from Revelation 7, it seems that Mount Zion is in heaven. Now, you might say, but Darren, can you be certain about that? No. No, we can't. However, we're, with apocalyptic literature, uh, there are a lot of things you can't be certain about. When one studies Greek especially, you come to the conclusion there are no rules in Greek, just heavy suggestions. And such as it is with apocalyptic literature, there's no rules, just heavy suggestions. So this idea of being able to nail it down conclusively, that's a very Western kind of idea that we might just have to set aside and say, we're going to take it as the, 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 the paucity, the, the most likely explanation of how we understand this. And for that purpose, we'll say Revelation 14, 1 to 5 is in heaven. The second question uh, is one that, <clears throat> quite frankly, is probably the most popular one that I get about hell itself. Will hell really last for eternity? Well, the answer is a simple yes. But to answer it that way and leave it, leaves some questions unanswered. So I wanted us to take this up, even though this isn't really a question that you're asking. My hope is that with this conversation, should the time come up when someone comes to you and says, is God fair to make hell last in eternity? Or that you are presented with one of the ideas that I'm going to give to you here in a few minutes, that you'll be able to say, we've talked about this at church. And here's the notes that Darren gave us about what that means. For you see, there's this idea that God owes it to humanity because we are made in his image to not give them what they've deserved or what they have demanded, independence from him. And if God does give it to him, well, he should still give them a break because he's so merciful and because he's so loving. Let's praise God right now 
that God is so merciful and loving. For quite clearly, all of us deserve hell. None of us have earned heaven. No matter how good we think we are, it is fool's gold in the sight of God. The only way, the only way for us to have our sins remitted and to be forgiven and redeemed from them is through the shed blood of Jesus, not our actions. We've all earned hell. It is only God's grace that prevents us from going there. So the idea that somehow God is unfair by sending people to hell is quite patently false, for God doesn't send anybody to hell. He begs them not to go. It is they who choose, demand even, to go there. Let's jump right into where I've put the notes here. <clears throat> the doctrine of hell is the most disturbing subject in the Bible. And the most disturbing thing about this subject is the duration. And the idea of punishment lasting for all eternity is unsettling. As such, some have adopted a kinder, gentler doctrine of hell. They want to soften it, and I don't blame them. Because after all, it sounds awful, doesn't it? The idea that hell will last for eternity and you'll be there if you are not in Christ. This is the way we've tried to soften it. Annihilationism. Annihilationism is a, a, not a new idea. It's the concept that all souls are created with immortality, but the wicked lose that at the final judgment and are extinguished, annihilated by God. For these, punishment for the lost is eternal extinction. In other words, they just cease to be. However, that speaks against a couple of things. We'll come back to them in a minute. For now, let's say annihilationists argue the lost are destroyed. Matthew 10.28 is one of the verses they choose. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are able to, unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The key word is destroy. For this group, that means annihilate. However, when we find the word destroy elsewhere in the New Testament, it does not mean annihilate. In Mark 14, 4, we find it translated waste. In Luke 15, it's used eight times. That's the triple parable that Jesus uses, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son, the prodigal son story. We find the word destroy, but we translate it lost every time, not destroyed. There's a second argument, a corollary to that, made by annihilationists, that the punishment of the lost is eternal, but not the punishing. This is a nuanced version of it. The fires of hell may burn forever, but that doesn't mean the lost are there to endure them. When you find hell in the New Testament, one of the things you'll find frequently is Jesus talking about it. Frequently, Jesus speaks of hell. Never once does he suggest that it is an annihilationistic place. Never once does he suggest that it is a place that no one will go to or that if they do go, they'll only be there for a time. Nor does he suggest that the punishment is limited in scope. In other words, that the punishment is worse than the punishing. No, quite frankly, 
what Jesus does when he talks about hell is he talks about how awful it is so people will understand it's not a place to aspire to. When you visit Jerusalem, one of the things that will strike you about the topography, I know we have a couple of geologists in our group tonight, the topography and the geology of the land, Jerusalem sits at the confluence of two valleys, one that runs up the east side of the city of Jerusalem. We call it the Kidron Valley. It's what separates the main city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives and the the valley further to the east. The other one runs along the southwest side of the city. It's at the south side of the city, right by the old city of David at the Kidron Brook that the the valley breaks off. We call it the Tyropean Valley. It's fun to say, Tyropean, you know? Tyropean Valley runs up towards the northwest. It heads out toward, eventually, the Megiddo Valley and then ultimately to the Mediterranean Sea. One of the things that occurs to you when you read the New Testament, especially Jesus' words, is Jesus' real attention isn't to the Kidron Valley when he speaks of that, it's to the Tyropean one. Why? Because in the Tyropean Valley there was a section that was known at that first century time when Jesus was there as Gehenna. In our context, we translated hell. It was the the, the garbage dump. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't spend much time in garbage dumps. Try to stay out of there if at all possible. I like dropping things where people will take them to the garbage dump for me, but I have no interest in actually going and participating in it. In those days, rather than gather it all up, they used it as an incinerator. The fires that would get started there, people would bring their refuse, dump it there, and leave it. This was long before the dangers of plastic and all those other things that wouldn't burn properly. These things would all consume. The thing about those fires is they would never go out. And that was exactly Jesus' point. That the fires continue to burn. It wasn't about being annihilated, it was about being punished. So when we speak of annihilationism as an option and put those words in the mouth of Jesus, we are doing a disservice to the greater body, the greater corpus of what Jesus is trying to say about hell. He never says it's annihilationism. Here's a second false view. Conditional immortality. This view teaches human souls are not inherently immortal. At judgment, the wicked will pass into oblivion while the righteous are given immortality. It's basically the sister to the previous one It means that you won't have to bear the burden of your false choices. When I was a younger man doing a lot of evangelism in downtown Dallas, one of the things that I heard over and over again was, I want to go to hell, Pastor. I want to go to hell because that's where all my friends will be. It'll be just like it is here, only forever. Hmm. Oh, I think there's a sad disappointment ahead for you, friend. And I made quite clear to tell them so. The reality about it is that's not the case. And the idea of conditional immortality is a blasphemy. The hard truth about hell is the clarity given in Scripture about its eternal nature. Seventy-one times in the New Testament the term ionos, eternal, is used. Fifty-one of those times it speaks to the happiness of the saved in heaven. Seven additional times it speaks to the fate of the wicked and its duration, eternity. I've listed those passages for you. 
I caution you, because those who want to pro- proclaim this idea of conditional immortality, they want to use this word ionos, eternal, one way for those in heaven and another for those who are not in heaven. To do so, however, requires the science of interpreting Scripture to stand on its head. Either you interpret it both ways every time, or you are doing yourself and the New Testament a disservice. I caution you against that because what we want is to be consistent in what we say about the Bible and let the Bible be consistent for what it says about itself. When we find that term, eternal, used in eternal terms for the the saved, then we must allow it to do the same for the lost, even if it grieves us. The most notable of these is in a parable that Jesus told in Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells this story of the sheep and the goats. It's a parable that uh, the Christian music artist Keith Green set to music. And when I hear the parable, I hear Keith Green playing it in the background, the soundtrack of my mind. Herein he talks about how the sheep will be gathered up on Jesus' right and the goats, the lost, on the left. And to those on the right, he will welcome them into eternal reward. And for those on his left, he will condemn them to eternal punishment. To receive this idea of conditional immortality means Jesus meant it when he said, welcome home to the saved, but he didn't really mean it to those on his left. In other words, Jesus had his fingers crossed. Ooh, I don't know about you, but I need to put up a lightning rod when I say something like that, you know? That's simply dangerous ground to start walking on. It's just not, not, not wise to try to put words in the mouth of Jesus or think that we know something he didn't because of our great enlightenment. You know, friends, our own intoxication with our education allows us a great many things including an arrogance about how we might interpret the Bible. Let, us sp- let it speak for itself when it chooses to. And with regard to hell, it chooses to. I want you to turn to Mark 9, 47 and 48. I want 9, 47 and 48. You'll see there the fires of hell are eternal. Why would they burn forever if there was no one there? What would allow them to continue to burn? In Revelation 20 chapter we'll get to after the first of the year the permanence of satan's punishment eternity is clear and evident it's presented as a confident assertion of god's ultimate victory and sovereignty and yes even revelation 14 the section i read to you just a moment ago speaks to the full measure of hell's eternality here's what i prayed throughout the course of my preparation for today's talk and for this talk here. May the truth of the eternal nature of hell fill us with pity and compassion for those who are headed there. Most of the time, when I think of hell, I think of how grateful I am to not be going there instead of thinking about how it is my responsibility to make sure others don't go there. I was at a luncheon this week uh, on, on uh, Thursday at the Horseshoe. I was talking with 
some other pastors and other, other leaders from the community and was talking with one other pastor specifically. We were talking about outreach and evangelism and somebody came up that I don't know their church background at all and they said something to me. Outreach? What are you doing that for? And I turned straight to him and I said, to make it hard for the people of Midland to go to hell. And they looked at me for a minute and they said, you really believe that? And I said, darn straight I do. If I didn't, why would I do this? Surely there are easier ways to make a living. But there are no more eternal ways. Friends, when we believe something that strongly, it will compel us to action. Let us be motivated to recognize it as such. Let us now move to the third question. Will the Valley of Armageddon really be filled so deep? So I rounded the numbers from the 1600 stadia in verse 20 of chapter 14 to 185, it's actually 183.49 or something like that. The imagery of that, that long valley being filled four to six feet deep in blood simply boggles the mind. It's not that it's impossible, especially not since we have seven billion people on the face of the earth now, but it seems shockingly graphic to the point of purposeful hyperbole. As I mentioned this morning, and here's the exact numbers I wanted to give it to you tonight, to fill the Megiddo with that much blood would require approximately 8.6 million liters of blood. If every person has about five liters, that would require 1.7 billion people to give every drop of their blood, or just over 2 billion to give most of it. As we said this morning, it may be literal that blood really will run that deep. If you look at a topographical map of the Jezreel Valley, of the Megiddo Valley, an interesting thing becomes evident, and I should have brought it and put it in the slideshow. My apologies for not doing so. You'll find when you look at a, a topographical map, there's a low point in the in Megiddo Valley, just about the center of the uh, of the, the distance between Haifa and Jerusalem, just about the center, just south of Megiddo itself, there's a low point, almost like a wine press has been hollowed out, where that low point would settle. Now, my question is, will the valley of Armageddon really be filled so deep? I, I answer it, yes, yes it will, but maybe in ways that we didn't anticipate. Is it necessary for it to be four to six feet deep for 183 miles for it to be fulfilled? I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know this. The judgment that God will execute as a result of it is just as profound, even if it's not. I have no doubt that there will be some when the battle of Armageddon takes place at whatever point in time that is in the future, I have no doubt there will be somebody out there measuring to say, it's not, it's not that deep yet. We're okay. Just keep fighting. We still have time yet. Don't worry about repenting. Don't worry about confession. Don't worry about taking up God's gracious offer. Continue on in the hardiness that comes. Hmm. I have no doubt there will be some who will split hairs with God and say, well, yes, but 
You said it would be for 1,600 stadia. It wasn't 1,600. It was only 1,450. I measured. I caution you. Because remember, this is apocalyptic literature. Our minds strain to understand the analogy. For there is a word at the end of verse 20 that I point you to. As high as a horse's bridle. This is an analogy in some respects. We just don't know which ones. We're not privy to the full whiff of what this means. So is it necessary for the, the valley to flow that deep in blood? No, I think it's sufficient to say that the battle will take place there and the valley will be bloody. Fourth and finally, what then does Armageddon mean? This is a double-ended question, and it's one that I want us to um, take a little bit of extra time with, with your kind permission. Our culture has adopted Armageddon, and it's a popular term now. Even a popular movie, maybe you've seen it. Anybody besides my well, don't, don't confess it. It's an R-rated movie. I don't want you to confess it in church. Uh, I'll say I've seen it because I couldn't stand not to. They're going to borrow a biblical term. I want to see what they're going to do with it. Its popular usage signifies a terrible or devastating event, and rightfully so, that may or may not be fictional. But let's be clear, as we pointed out just a moment ago, it really is a real place. The term itself, Armageddon, only appears once in Scripture, and you'll get to it in a couple of weeks. Revelation 16. They gathered them together in the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon, the hill of Megiddo. Literally means Mount Megiddo. It refers to an actual place in northern Israel overlooking a huge valley known variously at various times by all of these names. The Valley of Megiddo, the Valley of Armageddon, the Valley of Jezreel, the Plain of Estrelon. When you travel to Israel, and if you're interested in that, we're going to hold another interest meeting next week. You'll see it in the banner this week. When you travel to Israel, you're struck by how unimpressive it appears. The Valley of Jezreel, I mean. I will never forget being there with my father-in-law standing on top of Mount Carmel, looking down, and he said, this is it? This is the valley? Yes, sir. We'd traveled for a long way. Some of you were with us to be there. It wasn't that he was disappointed in its beauty. He was just shocked by how small it all seemed. Does this mean, then, that it is somehow not as significant because it doesn't live up to our expectations? No. No, the Valley of Armageddon it will indeed be significant. Let's take one more look at it. The valley itself is about 10 miles wide and properly speaking about 35 miles long. I'm speaking in, in topographical terms, in the actual measuring of what is a valley. In a visit to Israel, Napoleon Bonaparte said it would make an ideal battlefield. I thought that was an interesting thing and I found that this week. I'd never seen it, never noticed it. It's a literal and painful place destined to be the site of Earth's final battle. And another thing that I learned in my process of getting ready to come to you tonight, one of the men that I read most frequently and 
Bible preparation and, and getting ready for coming on Sunday morning is a gentleman named Craig Keener. Perhaps you have read something about Dr. Keener. If you've used any of the Lifeway curriculum, then you've seen his name referred to multiple times. The Acts series that we did a few years ago, I borrowed heavily from him because if there's a better scholar on Acts, I don't know who it is. In talking about Revelation 14 and Armageddon specifically, Craig Keener told something of a personal nature. Once upon a time, he was an atheist who set out to disprove the claims of Christ, and specifically he started in Revelation. When he got to Revelation 14 and found the battle of Armageddon and found the mercy of God revealed even to those who chose to reject God all along the way up to that point, he began to realize the mercy of God, and it changed the heart of his, his, his direction. It changed him from the atheist he had been to the Christ follower that he is now. So what does Armageddon mean? It means God's patience has a limit. There will come a time, just like we've said over and over again, when God will bring everything to a halt. It will be an awful time. It'll be a bloody time. It'll be a graphically gory time. It'll be something that we shall not look forward to. And yet, it'll be a marker of the end. When we see that battle, we will know. Now, this is the thing that, that a lot of people don't pay attention to, so I want to make sure I point it out to you. Why there? What's so special about that piece of land? Well, if you're one who has a global map at home, then I invite you to go home and look this over. If you intend to go by land from Asia, Asia Minor, from Europe to Africa, there's only one land bridge. It's there. The nation of Israel and that region is the land bridge. A strategic piece of property, if ever there was one. This narrowing, if you will, that exists there in the Middle East, this connection between the major continents of, Africa, of Asia and Asia Minor and, and Europe connecting to Africa speaks to how God brings things into place. Why wouldn't he choose some place easier to get to? Or why wouldn't he choose a place that was a little bit more fertile or not so rocky? I don't know the answer to that. I've been to some places that I wish he had chosen. But we can say this with absolute certainty. God chose that one. And he's still choosing it. For he still has plans yet ahead for that land. And I believe that Armageddon is a part of that. All right then, I think I've about covered the questions that I had prepared for you tonight. I wonder if you might have a question or two for me. My friend Katie has the microphone and we will see what happens tonight with Stump the Chump. All right, there's my friend Miss Jerry sitting in the sunshine.
Yeah. I just want to ask a question. When you were talking about the separate, you know, the harvesting, but um, and what's going to happen to those who are, uh, you know, harvested as wheat and harvested as grapes and the crushing of the grapes. And you were talking about, you know, that there will be that you're not that you wonder if there will be people even then saying it's not high enough. I wonder also too, with God's grace, is He still offering? a change of heart and a change of mind during those times? Or is it already settled, uh, you know, because of the separation of the wheat and the grapes? So the question you've asked, Jerry, is one that I, I would love to offer a conclusive answer on. If I was a dispensationalist, I would offer you a definitive one. Because I'm not, I'll say we're not sure. Uh, I would hope that God in his mercy would offer one more time. Yeah, not to take away from what you've just said tonight, yeah. but, you know, is there hope up until there's no hope at all, or is that the time that there is no hope at all? Yes, it all, it all hinges on how you understand the return of Christ. When, did, when does or when did Jesus return? For, uh, for dispensational scholars, they have essentially two returns of Christ. One that is the rapture, where Jesus raptures the church and they are lifted up to heaven and then a later one that they identify as the second coming of christ which is where jesus sets his feet on the mount of olives and begins the process of settling things out uh, so if you are not a dispensationalist then you tend to push the second coming of christ to what is for the dispensationalists what they refer to as the second coming when jesus sets his feet on the earth at that time when jesus does set his feet then Yes, it will be too late. So the, the, the questions about when Jesus' patience has run out before that point is not clear. Because doesn't, in the next chapter that we're going to look at, there's still more plagues. I guess that's yes. what I was wondering. Yes, the know. seven bold judgments are next, and they are the, the plague judgments that parallel what we found in the book of Exodus. There's only seven, not ten, thank goodness for that. But will, will the church be here for that, it's not clear. I'm not trying to fudge on you, Miss Jerry. I hope you know that. I'm, I'm, I, want, I want to be as faithful as I can with what, what I, I feel like we can say clearly. All right, someone else? Gosh, I just knew we'd have more than that. Well, hey. I'm not too familiar with like um, all of the ideas of where the Garden of Eden w was supposed to be, yes. but is there any kind of thought or idea that maybe it, the, this whole Armageddon will also end in the Garden of Eden, or is it too far-fetched? <laughs> it's, a, it's a poetic idea, isn't it? Come full circle. Uh, historically, we've regarded as the Garden of Eden as located between the rivers Euphrates and, and Tigris. The, the fertile crescent, if you will, is where we regard the, the Garden of Eden to have taken place. That's a good bit north from where the Valley of Megiddo is. Uh, it is across the Golan, excuse me, across the Golan Heights and, and quite some distance, several hundred miles. However, it's not to say that the Battle of Armageddon couldn't stretch far enough to reach there. So let me say yes and. Uh, so my personal belief is that the battle will not be limited merely to the uh, battlefield 
at the Valley of Megiddo. Uh, what we've learned about wars in the last hundred years is that they are global in nature. Now, the other thing that's, that's a question is, what about atomic weapons? Uh, if you're interested in, in this, then I invite you to look this up. Uh, it was a book written in the early 90s, uh, a book written by John David Walvoord, uh, entitled Armageddon in the Middle East and Oil. And his argument was that oil will be the reason that this war that we are engaged in, that we know as the Gulf War, uh, that will bring Armageddon to pass. And that will, that will initiate the second coming of Christ. Factor in that he's a dispensationalist who's looking to fit history to an agenda. I'm not, listen, I'm not trying to bash on him. Don't, don't misunderstand me at all. It's just that, that, that kind of interpretation is difficult at best. And if you do it at all, it's best in hindsight, not trying to pro pro prophesy going forward. So your question is, can it be concluded at the place where it all started? That would be appropriate in many respects, but the Bible doesn't make that clear. All right, anyone else? One last chance? Somebody wanted me to make sure they... Uh... Oh, yeah, here you go. Uh, just a little. So is Revelation 16, 16 basically the, that sixth bowl, the same as the 14? Yes, they're parallels. That's all the same, yeah. right? Yeah, that is the, the fuller description of what we read this morning. Uh, it is, it is a, a detailing of it. So uh, one, of the, one of the theories we have for laying out Revelation is that many of these uh, visions that John has lay on top of each other. They don't, they're not chronological. This leads to that, leads to this other. No, they, they lay on top of each other, and that, that gives us room to interpret them together. All right, friends, somebody wanted me to make sure I knew the Cowboys kicked off at 7. Yes, I've been told that. Uh, but, so we're, we're not impressed, but we do hope they win, as you can tell by the colors that I'm wearing. My prayer for you this week is that you will consider what we've talked about today and that when the time comes for you to have an opportunity to talk to someone at your place of employment or at your school about your walk with Christ and what you've learned today, that you'll use some of this to initiate a conversation and ask their, them about their spiritual welfare. The vast majority of people don't come to church because of great music or good preaching. They come because a friend invited them. Over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about revival and about how revelation should inspire us to recognize those of us who receive it as a word of encouragement ought to be inspired to reach out to those who are hearing it as a word of warning. That's the essence of I will. I will reach Midland. I will reach my office. I will reach my school. I will reach those in my circle of influence. My prayer is that today you'll pray about that and that this week, when that opportunity arises, you'll take it. Let's pray together and we'll be concluded. We're grateful, Lord Jesus, for what we've heard and experienced today. We're grateful, Jesus, that you've called us to be yours. 
We don't know all the details of your return, but you do. And that's enough for us. It's a reminder, Jesus, that you are in charge and we are not. Because you are in charge, we can stand confidently in your presence, joyfully confident that you, because of your love for us, will carry us home, even if, even if it's more difficult than we thought it should be. I pray, Lord, for each of us as we go. Let us be moved to compassion for those who are not in your kingdom. Let us be moved to action and help us, Father, to find words that maybe we didn't know we had to share the life, hope, and truth that you alone can bring. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go in the grace, mercy, and peace of Christ.